Hello, I'm Rich Blundell, the trickster in residence at the Mariah Mitchell Association. This week, we speak with our favorite birder and Nantucket native, Ginger Andrews, about the annual Christmas bird count and her philosophies on science, art, and the nature of Nantucket. But before we begin, we also want to give a quick shout-out to some of the people that made the CBC possible this year, including Yvonne Valancourt of the UMass Field Station, Edie Ray, Ken Blackshaw, and Libby Buck from the Linda Loring Foundation. Thank you and the over 60 volunteers who made this year's count a big success. I begin today by asking Ginger for a little background on the Christmas bird count. So the Christmas bird count was originally started by, I believe, Frank Chapman, who was an ornithologist who um, uh, was not really taken with something called the side hunt which was um, a sportsman's uh, tradition day after Christmas, you know, Boxing Day. Um, they would go out with their guns and just shoot more or less anything that moved. And whoever killed the most things won the honors of the day. Ta-da! So uh, a lot of birds not even, they weren't killed for food. They weren't killed for specimens even. They were just slaughtered for, you know, the fun of slaughtering them. At which obviously appealed to a great many people in those days. So this actually is kind of interesting because it it came about at a time when there was a shift in consciousness about our relationship to the natural world. So that kind of gives it a, a little bit more relevance. Fair enough. You know, like the, yeah, like yeah. It, it was born amidst a shift in consciousness about something. Well, yes. I mean, the the 19th century, uh, te- the technological advances that made uh, market gunning, uh, which uh, you know did for the uh, passenger pigeon. Um, you know that there was um, shotguns. That, you know, various sizes of shot. You could kill various sizes of birds at various distances. So, um, you know, there were these technological advances, the railways to, for the passenger pigeon, it was really simple because they would all nest in one big roost. So they would just build a temporary railroad track to where the birds were, shoot as many millions of them as they could, pack them into, uh, you know, kegs and uh, take them to the markets in the major Mm. eastern cities. They were apparently rather tough. I, uh, I used to have a cookbook that had belonged to my grandmother, which had recipe for, you know, pigeons, cooking pigeons. And the wild pigeons required a little more to, um, to toughen, you know, they must have been fairly tough because they had to be specially worked on to make them a little more palatable. Mm-hmm. So the... You know, when I, was, when I was doing a little bit of research on this, I came across a lot of photos of those shoots. A lot of times it wasn't just passenger pigeons, but it was, you know, wading birds and songbirds. And I always well, wondered, like, what, what do they do with all that? Well, the market gunners used a lot, and uh, the shorebirds were particularly delicious. So they, there was, a, in fact, late 19th century uh, Nantucket, um, actually it was Muskeget, was a major hunting area. They had a you know number of cabins over there. The wealthy uh, Boston merchants like um, George H. Mackey would uh, he hunted up and down the East Coast, and he um, uh, he was particularly fond of coming to Muskeget. He was an East India merchant, uh, owned the Middle Brick, I think it was. Anyway, had a big house on Main Street, and you know lived lived in Boston as a you know during the 
season one. He wasn't hunting, mm. and uh, but he kept extremely detailed records. So he realized that uh, birds could, in fact, be eliminated from existence on the planet rather quickly. Mm. So he became, in later life, an ardent conservationist. He was particularly interested in roseate terns on Muskeget. So he uh, uh, was instrumental in helping the... He was also a crony of, uh, of Teddy Roosevelt, I believe. So mm. he became instrumental in the initial founding of the Audubon Society, and also to get the Migratory Bird Treaty of 1918 passed. There were some uh, previous um, iterations of that. I think they started in 1916, but uh, a lot of countries signed on to the Migratory Bird Treaty. It was a very important conservation uh, effort, which um, uh, some powers that be now are trying to completely undo mm. um, do you think that the, 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 the disposition or the attitude of the bird count has shifted from that which you described as very quantitative, how many can you shoot, to something that's more qualitative, meaning not just what kind of birds, but what is the experience of, of birding? Well, yeah, that's, very, that's a very interesting question because initially it started for bragging rights, which certainly there are still a lot of birders that want to big up, build, a big, build up a big list and have you know seen all or as many as they can of the ever-changing number of bird species in the world but other people uh, uh, what 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 this count initially did was unbeknownst to them it created the largest quote-unquote citizen science project in the world mm. the earliest start on uh, counting birds in 15 mile circles on one particular day and that uh, gives us a a, through, a, a picture through time yeah. of what was where and when. But also it gives us a picture of through time of how our attitudes toward the natural world have shifted. Somewhat. From, from something that was quantitative and competitive to something that's more of a lifestyle thing. Like Well, it can be. But I, mean, I, I know but, a birder when I see one. Uh-huh. <laughs> how do you know a birder when you see one? Well, I count them and I t keep track of them and I, I, I compile... Uh, I compile a yearly count of birders that I see, and I try to describe them in their habitats. <laughs> I wish uh, that I wish the podcast could um, capture facial expressions. <laughs> okay, so let's bring it down. You know, bring it back home a little bit here. So, so what's going on with the Nantucket bird count? Well, the Nantucket bird count did not start in 1900. It um there was no apparently a lot of interest in birds in the late 19th century in the library we have a a godfrey's guide to nantucket it was basically a you know uh, 1880 something tourist guide to nantucket it was in alphabetical order and it had an ornithology section and it, it, the comment that he made was that it uh, that nobody was really interested in birds on nantucket now Clearly, the people who were interested in birds were interested in shooting and eating them more than, you know, making specimens or, you know, nice mounts for decoration or um, things like that. So um, that's also an interesting perspective back in time. But uh, in 1953, my parents got married. My father was a fisherman who knew all the seabirds. My mother was a Cornell-trained ornithologist 
who had worked with Ludlow Griscom on a on 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 an Audubon guide, you know, birds on Nan- birds of Nantucket or something like that was the title, which came out in I think 1947, 48, somewhere in there. So, uh, and they had a friend by the name of John Dennis, who was probably the last person to see an ivory-billed woodpecker alive. Wow. Um, he uh, was an ornithologist and has family ties to the island. He came up here, he was here that year teaching school, I think. And the three of them decided that it would be great to have a Christmas count on Nantucket. So that's what they did. Mm-hmm. It's nice because it's a kind of contained you know, place. Yeah, the island is the perfect size for a 15-mile circle. So the three of them did the whole, uh, they did the whole count, the three okay. of them. And it's certainly grown since then. I think we had 50 participants this year, and we've had as many at pre-COVID. There there would be 60 or more. People would get a start on their year list or finish off if they'd missed things. And uh, and uh, now Tuckernock has its own count also. Cool. So we have a, a nice comparison of uh, species. Have you had a chance to check out the report? Yeah, I looked at the the sheet. I haven't. I can't say I've digested the whole thing, but right. uh, they had a hundred and we had a hundred and twenty nine species, and thirty five thirty five thousand and some individuals, what's which your, is way low. What's okay? I, so I'd like to get a sense for like what your take has been. You know, in the ones that you've that you've participated in, have you seen? Do you see any patterns or trends, or what's your gut feeling about what's what's been going on? Well, I haven't. Uh, I haven't really. I don't. I don't sit down and analyze data like that. Um, I know the the people are. I mean, the data. You know, Cornell goes in and looks at the trends overall, which is one of the ways that we know that we in North America anyway we've lost a billion birds since the mid sixties. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it does seem to fluctuate in in kind of mysterious ways. Well, it depends on the species. Like, for example, in this week's Inking Mirror, I wrote about the long-tailed ducks a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, periodically, we would see hundreds of thousands of long-tailed ducks. It would be a river of birds. They would be roosting on the sound, flying past Great Point for the morning commute, feeding offshore on gaminid amphipods, whatever those are, mm-hmm. and uh, then coming back along the south shore uh, somewhat to the dismay of some of the pilots who were going, well, it's a lot of birds that we're supposed to fly over. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there were big concentrations of, you know, a half a million or more long-tailed ducks, uh, estimated by a timed uh, point count. Those big flights were, there were some in the 1980s, and no one believed that they actually existed. And then they were, uh, again, they were seen around the early 2000s, and they were just uh, an incredible spectacle. Mm. Uh, I mean, they were reliable, uh, starting around Thanksgiving into into the winter. And uh, they just have been tapering off since. And what we don't know, because they're seabirds, is are there just the same number of birds distributed across the Atlantic? Or are we, are we just not seeing them because the concentration of food isn't on Nantuck Shoals to draw them out there? Um, or did we somehow lose ten percent of the world's population of long-tailed mm. ducks? I mean, there's no way to know that. Well, yet. over, but when, this is actually pointing precisely to the value of long-term 
distributed research is that you start to see some of these trends. Yes, eventually. And if you have enough data points, you start to get, you slowly start to accumulate a better picture of, of reality, which we wouldn't have if we didn't have this oh, annual absolutely. bird count. That's that's one of many, yeah. yeah. So I want to shift gears here, and I know you're an artist, and so I want to find out more about you as an artist. Well, there was a, uh, um, a woman by the name of Beverly Hall, who had a children's art school on South Wharf back in the 1960s, I guess it was. And uh, she gave a scholarship to a local kid. And a friend of my parents who was an artist took in some of my little sculptures and paper things. And um, so one year I was the kid when I was about 10. And um, I just fell in love with the arts. It was a tremendously creative place. It was just a couple hours in the morning, but... uh, you know, there was always, um, you know, some new ideas. There were, you know, paintings and pictures of, not paintings, but pictures of old master paintings and uh, just every kind of artwork. And um, so I loved it so much that I, the next year she said, well, you could be my assistant. <laughs> so until I went off to boarding school, I did that every summer. And it was really um, uh Tremendously exciting because, you know, my father had all the fish sewed up. My mother was the bird expert. I could never match up to that mm. knowledge. And I was going to ask that. how that landed, like at home, the fact well, that you were really it, interested in art. Uh, it was basically a worthless occupation that I would never make any money at. So there was a great deal of discouragement, both from my mother, who... Uh, was not, she said she could copy things, but she was not creative, so she didn't um, she didn't really value it. Although she was actually a founding member of the Artists Association and took art classes back when it was founded in the forties. Um, a lot of my parents' friends were artists, but uh, that wasn't where they wanted me to go, I guess. Yeah. But that was where I felt that I could yeah. be myself. Um, part of the problem with my early life with birding is that I have really terrible eyesight. And so, you know, birds are a lot more interesting when you can see them. I didn't get glasses until I was halfway through first grade, I guess, when they started testing people. And thank God they did. Otherwise, I still wouldn't be able to see anything. But the, um, the, the optics also improved. So I became a birder a lot later. Mm-hmm. I had a... Um, I did a lot of what I called uh, preemptive chauffeuring in the last decade or so of my mother's life. She lived to be 100. And I felt that she and the world were a little safer if she wasn't spending too much time behind the wheel. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so, I, that, so that, and, but her revenge, if you will, was that I got a daily four-hour ornithology tutorial uh, for about 10 years. Mm. And that was a valuable, a, a hugely valuable gift. And um, I don't paint birds much. I'm more into landscapes these days. I I'd had a, um, I did a lot of silk screening initially. I did, you know, theater posters and 
Oh, t-shirts, sheets, pillowcases, you name it. If it could be printed on, I would print it. Even recycling bags. Mm. The ink for which, I have to say, was so toxic that I can't imagine that there was any net gain for the planet. However, I did my best. How has Nantucket been what you need? Well, it's where my roots are. So uh, the family's lived here for a very long time. Um... Uh, there's a personal history, family history, um, and uh, just in my life, uh, an interest in the changes over time. I mean, uh, I mentioned earlier the blizzard of 78, which um, was a really uh, uh, strong blizzard. Storm. I remember it. Here. Were you here in Swarmstead? I, I was in uh, Duxbury. Oh, okay. Just across the bay, yeah. Yeah. Well, this was the one where the um, the barrier beach retreated across Ram and put the dunes connecting Ram Pasture to the beach. So Hummock Pond, instead of being one large J-shaped pond, became two isolated ponds. So that was one. You were there to witness a geologic event. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, because the beach always looks like the beach, it's difficult to remember that it well, it hasn't always been in the same place. I mean, you can look at Mariah Mitchell picnics uh, down at Great Point, and um, it looks like anyone having a picnic today, except the clothes are a little different, and the sunglasses aren't the same style. But if you were to put it on a map, the lighthouse has been moved, and the point has moved, yeah. and uh, the dunes are different, and, and that's... Uh, that's the kind of thing that only comes with long-term research, like we were talking about with the bird count. Like or you start, just living with it. But you start to see the dynamism of the place that we're in over mm-hmm. time. That's cool. Absolutely. I just think you're on to so many really interesting ideas. Well, I find life very interesting. <laughs> I find living things interesting. That's why I have a trouble with technology how do you relate because to, I'm not interested in those things. How do you relate to Mariah Mitchell? Well, I would say it's uh, part of my family. My father uh, met my mother here. My aunt worked here and uh, for... Um, I mean the woman. Oh, to the to the woman Mariah Mitchell, she is a continuing inspiration. Yes, because she put up with so many annoying people and managed to maintain, as far as I could tell, a very um, polite and uh, accepting um, nature, while also managing to be outraged for the injustices perpetrated against her sex because of her gender and others i think that 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 outrage extended to other people oh absolutely as well other to groups. racism yeah. And, and yeah oh yeah science is incomplete always, always which is what makes it so fascinating yeah, i agree i think i think mariah mitchell would have would have identified that too that i'm that, sure that, she did that throw the joy of discovery yeah and that's that's what it is that's, that's one constant yeah. Yeah. Which is not constant. It comes well, in waves. If if, if the joy of the, the joy of discovery can come from seeing a wave or a sunset or seeing a, the sunset through a wave just as much as it can be from finding, you know, oh my god, that's a bird I've never seen here before. Or um 
or finding some interesting fact. Mm.